This is the Ironside Podcast, number 36, with Tom Dinkelman and me, Brett Kane. Good evening, Tom. What's going on, buddy? Hey, happy to be here. And we have a very special guest today, my brother, Nima. Thanks for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm so excited. Yeah, well, we've been talking about this for a while, and you've always made some some big waves uh, on the interwebs, and most recently, you've started this uh, Frycore treatise on your Substack, and this is an, an excerpt from the preface to that. The foundational basis of society is, though often forgotten, the individual. If you wish to understand a machine, you need to understand the parts. It makes sense then that to understand nations, you need to understand individuals. To understand why nations wage war, you need to understand why people wage war. However, like all machines, the natures of the parts don't reflect the nature of the machine. An automobile contains thousands of individual parts, but no part on its own is representative of the vehicle in its entirety. Yet this is a common mistake made by academics and other pseudo-intellectuals when they try to assess the personal level of conflict. The character of rationality found in states and institutions is incorrectly imposed on the individual. However, it doesn't take a room of sociologists and peer-reviewed studies to know that humans often act irrationally and often ignore what may objectively be materially best for them. Furthermore, academics being quintessential midwits are naturally predisposed to critical theories. Critical theories are to academics what helmets are to special needs kids. We've all noticed the helmets getting tighter and cutting off the blood flow. <laughs> I love that, man. So this this preface, uh, tell people, because I, I before this came out, I, I had never heard of the, the Fry Corps. So let's just dive into that. Yeah. I mean, the Fry Corps were a super interesting period of interwar history, sort of starting towards the end of the First World War, so like in 1918, um, and pretty much that lasted sort of until around 1920. That was sort of the prime of, so it, was, it wasn't a very long period of time. It was only about two and a half years or so, but within that time, a lot happened. Um, and there were Fry Corps in the Baltic, which is particularly what I write about, but there were Fry Corps all over Europe, mostly in Germany. Um, and they did a lot of uh, domestic military operations within Germany. But uh, what I write about is mostly the external, at that point it became the external military operations of the Baltic Fry Corps. And within this two period, I, and one of the reasons why it got so interesting to me within these two two years or so, um, you pretty you pretty much sort of saw the the construction of sort of a proto nation and the and the demolition of, of a proto nation. And in that way, I like to me it represented a thousand years of history compacted into two years, pretty much. And it it's so understudied. There's not a, there isn't really a whole lot of books about it. Um, translations are sparse, and it seemed really odd to me that people weren't studying this really dense period of history. So I've I've decided that you know um, with I have a, you know my back I I did a lot of a 
research on German history during my college years, and it was always sort of something super interesting to me. Um, so I decided that this was something that was probably useful uh, use of my time, and I wanted to go more into this and sort of bring more people to this really super interesting story. So out of curiosity, why do you think it's so neglected and why do you think it's so important to bring to the forefront? Yeah, so one of the reasons it's so neglected is that uh, translations of firsthand uh, accounts are very far in between. Um, so there's there are a lot of memoirs from Freikorps soldiers that have sort of just gone un, untranslated um, for whatever reason that might be. And, you know, most academic work uh, in the world is done in English. Um, so if, if you're, if you have German memoirs that aren't getting to English academics, uh, the chances of work being done on that is very low. Um, and also, uh, one of the reasons is I think that a lot of people have a hard time fully conceptualizing and understanding uh, what exactly the Fry course were, because it, it broke down a lot of popular assumptions within um, that sort of period of history. And so the, the ability for people who do research, you know, modern days being academics, um, to really understand and discern the attitudes of these men, um, it's, it's very lacking in these people. So at, at some point, I think a lot of academics just decide that they're not going to try. And it doesn't really lend itself to more formulaic conceptions of history, I think, that we're used to, which is super easy to do within modern history with states, but breaks down more in super muddied, um, super muddy periods of history. So are you doing the translations, some of these translations yourself, or are you finding them in English? So some of the translations that I've used, um, most of the translations I've used so far have been from other uh, translations already done. But there are a few that um, that I've done, and I'm working on some more translations. And uh, I probably won't include them a whole lot in my series uh, because I I want to release them when they're fully complete. Um, but yeah, so pretty much uh, most of the translations are are previous translations. Some of them are original. Where did you learn German? Um, so uh, growing up, I sort of had a interest in German history and German philosophy. Um, like I didn't get in too much into philosophy until I was a little bit older. But during college, um, I got super interested in the in some of the German philosophers. And it seemed like if you really want to understand, so one of the in. Um, in philosophy, a lot of stuff gets lost when you try to translate the words that the original philosophers use. And if you want to understand uh, what those philosophers are actually saying, you're going to have to learn their language, at least to some extent. So it seemed like a good use of my time to learn German. And it, it came pretty easy to me um, compared to other languages I had tried to learn before. So I stuck with it for like four years, four or five years now. And I'd say I've gotten to a pretty good level where I feel comfortable translating these texts now. What have you found is the most difficult thing? I, I've done a little bit of translation uh, 
yeah, I've done some interpreting in Spanish as well and, and translating texts and, you know, kind of low level stuff. What have you found to be the, the most difficult thing besides, you know, not being an equivalency to some of these words, but are there, you know, ideas or anything that, that are particular hard, particularly hard for you? Um, the, the greatest difficulty that I've had so far is trying to maintain some of the prose of a, of a piece while, try, while also providing an accurate translation. And you, you know, trying to figure out how to balance keeping some of the, the poetry and the beauty of a piece to, uh, but also making it uh, understandable in the language that it tra translated to it has been sort of difficult. Um, and also German sentence structure is very different. And, um, and, that, and that can make um, making a literal translation a little hard. So I've sort of had to wrestle with uh, providing a translation that is accurate and I would feel comfortable using in a more research context, but also one that doesn't bore the reader. So, I mean, looking at this, it's been over a hundred years. Uh, there's been limited research on it. The translations are difficult. I mean, why, why do you feel it's important to understand this brief period and be able to, to relay this message? Yeah. So in my preface, uh, one of the things that I'm complaining about is um, how modern, so I have a background in international relations and my complaint has always been that modern scholars and academics have a re have really bad conflict resolution theories because what they fail to do so when you're resolving a, uh, a conflict after it's been done what you're trying to do is sort of um at least on the societal level on uh to sort of wipe away the the scars of the conflict you've just faced and try to get people back to sort of a sense of normalcy, normal lives, get them to work again. Um, and previous theories of conflict resolution generally lack one really important uh, principle that you have to understand if you, wanna, if you wanna do that. And that's the ability to understand the internal logic of your enemy who you just defeated. Because a lot of people sort of walk around with this cartoonish idea that like uh, there are like uh, mustache twirling bad guys in the world and like good people with halos around their head, right? And either the good guy beat the bad guy. And so now we have to like punish the bad guy, put him in prison for a thousand years. Like, yes, sometimes you have to uh, punish people for their action, obviously. But if you want to reconcile the conflict after it's happened, uh, you have to be able to understand the internal logic of the people you just defeated. Because chances are that they're not mustache twirling people, that they're just sort of people that have different, who created a different logic scheme within their mind. And it might be a very reasonable logic scheme. And unless you're able to understand what they were thinking, you're not going to be able to uh, create a satisfactory um, resolution afterwards. And that's sort of what happened during World War One, right? The Treaty of Versailles essentially failed because they were unable to create a, a resolution which was satisfactory to, um, to 
the the Germans and and that that became a the Treaty of Versailles became a very important factor for Freikorps members. They had essentially been felt as if they had been stabbed in the back, not only by the Allies but also by the German government. And that essentially led to you know fourteen you know the range of Freikorps members sort of went between twenty thousand and forty thousand uh, men. But that essentially led to a large population of armed, angry men because not, you know, they had understood that they lost the war and they were facing problems reconciling that already. And their defeat was really humiliating and they felt humiliated. But now they had, now, you know, when they went east, which originally they had the permission of the German government and the Latvian government to do so because they had, they had even been promised Latvian citizenship after, after their service and land to start settlements in the Baltics. But they sort of eventually at the end started to become securitized by the German government and Latvian government and, um, and the Estonian government and the, and the allied powers. Uh, pretty much every promise that was made to them was taken away. They didn't get any land. They didn't get their Latvian citizenship, which they were promised. Um, and, and that led to Germany eventually turning to national socialism, because at the very base of your conflict, you didn't understand the internal logic of your enemy. So when you resolve that conflict, you fail to satisfy uh, your enemy, and instead you created resentment. And creating resentment generally means that there's going to be another conflict again eventually. Uh, and the Baltics, had, to me, was a really good example of what you shouldn't do after, after a battle. And like Brett's a fighter, he knows that when you get in a ring with someone and you beat them, like what you, you know, you don't uh, Fortnite dance on them afterwards. Uh, you, you sort <laughs> of, uh, you know, you had your fight, it's over, you won, and you sort of move on gracefully. And that's, you know, that's not what happened. And it created a lot of resentment, which eventually led to another war. So you believe that if they had handled this properly, we would have avoided World War II altogether? Um, you know, <laughs> that, that's a hard question to answer, but... Um, because it's speculation, but... Right, obviously. Um, but a lot of Freikorps members, by no means a majority of them, uh, ended up joining uh, the National Socialist Party. Um, so it's, you know, it's very likely to me that if you had resolved your conflict in a more responsible matter, then chances are that you probably wouldn't have gone towards uh, a Second World War. That's really interesting. There's another quote that I'd like to read from, from your article, and you say, my point is that attempts to discern motivation through critical perspectives are doomed to fulfill a sort of confirmation bias. A feminist perspective will unsurprisingly determine that socially constructed gender roles are why men fight. A biological perspective will conclude that conflict is an evolutionary mechanism. Yet even these critical perspectives ultimately do the same thing as the conventional realist and liberal approaches which are to create a list of rational preferences for actors. Almost all conflict resolution theory is premised on the satisfaction of preferences. If you really want to understand conflict and war, you really can't rely on those nerds. 
I, I, I love your, your writing style as well. So, you know, we've talked about kind of how you, how you got an interest in this subject. How did you develop you, your writing prowess? Um, you know, uh, as embarrassing as it might be, when I was in high school, I got super into Christopher Hitchens. And, you know, he was wrong on a lot of things, obviously, but I think it's sort of hard to doubt that at the very least, he was a really good speaker. And in a way that like the other new atheists just weren't like a Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, like they're going on blabbering about nonsense. And you have Christopher who's like actually sort of speaking eloquently. Um, so he became an early inspiration for the way that I write and speak. And then just throughout college, um, uh, you know, I took some writing classes and that helped a little bit, but I, I sort of started to uh, build up an internal disdain for a lot of uh, ways that modern academics write. Um, like if you read any sort of uh, modern political quarterly, it's just the most unreadable, unbearable, mind-numbing, drooling uh, writing that you've ever heard. Um, and like, it doesn't have to be like, you know, you can be smart and be fun at the same time. Like you can have uh, fun doing writing. Uh, so I, I guess like, um, I, I know that my writing is a little bit more um, formal than most other writers, I think. So like uh, I, I had someone tell me that I sort of, I'm too straightforward, a little bit like Hemingway, but. Um, and you said, but, thank you. Yeah, I said, yeah, right. I said, thank you. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's, that's sort of how I got my style with a little bit of disdain for the conventional academic writing style, but at the same time, like, there's definitely some value in it. So I try to maintain a, as much of that value as I can while trying to let go of like the really cringe, uh, like use of words that just don't need to be used and things like that. I feel like a lot of times, people are different when it comes to their personality online, the way that they write, who they are in, in real life. So my question would be is, is the way that you write, is that how you are in real life? Um, I think so. Uh, like, I'll make, a, like within my writings, I'll make a Faust joke, like every, like once a, a, an article or something. And that's sort of like uh, the way that I talk. Like I'll generally talk pretty formally, I think. And every now and then throw in like a, like a bathroom joke or something. But yeah, so it's not too far off from the way that I write. Yeah, you're, you're, you are very funny. And, and it's clear I mean, how intelligent you are. But, you know, there, there's just that like little dash uh, of kind of sardonic and, and a little bit of, of humor thrown in. So I think that's good. Well, I, I want to circle back to, you know, talking about how in almost every instance, it's not just these mustache twirling supervillains. Uh, it made me think of Proverbs uh, 21 that says, every man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the hearts. And I, I think like that this is a really, really good thing that you're doing in not even necessarily on, on a geopolitical scale, but, but personally, you know, I, my, I have a six-year-old daughter and it doesn't make any sense to me why, you know, she would like cut all of her Barbie's hair off 
but to her, it made perfect sense, you know? So I, I think that this yeah. is definitely helping people in, in your preface, you, you talked about, uh, there was a poem that you read that was just this beautiful poem. Can you talk a little bit about that for, for people who might yeah. have read that? So it's, it's kind of popular. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. Um, the original text is sort of hard to find, but on YouTube, it's called um, Die Grenzwacht hielt im Osten, uh, which uh, means like the border watch stops in the east, the east being the Baltics. And because one of, one of, the, uh, one of the ideas that uh, came to the Freikorps leadership was that they had essentially become uh, the border of Germany. Yeah, even though they weren't supported um, by the by the by the socialist government at that time, which had sort of become, you know, everyone knows the Weimar Republic became sort of inept um, in all ways, really. Um, but they had essentially become the Eastern Front of Germany in their own minds, um, in all ways. Like they had pretty much become the nation. They had become the border guards. So being the Eastern Front of Germany became a a, a very important part of their identity. Um, so yeah, it's this super uh, beautiful poem by a Baltic baron. And these Baltic barons were, uh, you know, barons in the Baltics, they were landowners and they were originally some of the uh, people who had initially requested Freikorps soldiers in the area. Um, these people have had, had had ties to the Baltics that go generations, uh, you know, all the way to the Teutonic Knights really. Um, so they were landowners and they had even agreed to give up a lot of their land for Freikorps soldiers to come and settle on. Um, but it's a poem by one of, uh, by a Baltic Baron. And essentially he's lamenting the, the loss of his uh, ancestral homeland. And it's, it's pretty sad. Um, it's really beautiful. And the, the, the group that sings it, I, I couldn't tell you who does, but the group that sings it or the person that sings it does a really good job. Um, yeah, so if you, I think it's a really nice listen. It really, uh, it's one of the things that sort of got me interested in this period of history and made me look into it a little bit more. Um, so the, the, the guy who wrote the poem, um, I'm having trouble remembering his name right now, but the guy who wrote the poem, his father was killed by a Latvian rifleman. Um, so the conflict was super close to him. Um, but even, even just the prospect of losing your homeland, you know, sort of uh, makes one lament in that sort of way. But uh, a lot of interesting uh, songs and poems and, and memoirs came from that time period. So I think with anything that we study, we listen to, I mean, really, dive into, I, I think it's nearly impossible for it to affect us in our daily lives. I mean, I, I find myself whenever I'm reading something and it, and it strikes a chord, then all of a sudden it, it brings these changes or it reaffirms some of the things that I've already believed or, or I'm doing. As you've studied the Freikorps, what is it, what are some things that have maybe been reinforced in you or have caused a change in the way that you conduct your life? Um, one thing that a realization that I had when I was when I researched more into that poem that uh, I just talked about is that this guy loves his land in a way that I sort of never have. 
Um, and that, that's, that could be for a variety of reasons. But I, I don't particularly know the feeling of being that emotional over, uh, over your homeland. And I, I sort, and I sort of can't even imagine it really. Um, and I think maybe a lot of people feel that way sort of right now because uh, increasingly people have become more disassociated with the ground underneath them. Um, most countries have sort of converged onto, at least most, uh, you know, most well-off Western countries have sort of converged into one modus of living. There's not like too much variety in the way that people live across countries anymore. Like maybe you have some superficial cultural things like which, what type of sports you play, but like ultimately you're all doing the same Excel work. You're all sort of using the same devices, using the same social media outlets and whatever, even like reading the same news articles now um, as sort of a, a few languages take over um, what originally was like Europe was filled with hundreds, hundreds of languages. Now it's sort of converging on a few dozen. Um, and you know, and that sort of being uh, decoupled from your land in that way, I think, really starts to tear up the internal, uh, in the, the mind of, of a man, uh, because you no longer have something to ground yourself in. And most, I think most identities sort of have become artificial right now, in that the second they're put under any real pressure, they sort of fall apart. But, you know, these, the identity these guys had built with that land was so strong that they were ready to give up land. They were, and these were barons, right? They had enough money to go live into the, in the, in Germany. They didn't have, they didn't have to do this, but the connection that they had built with the land was so strong that they were willing to do a lot of things to sort of maintain it. It's hard to imagine, you know, let alone our elites who definitely wouldn't do that sort of thing anymore but even like uh, most people being that connected to their land. And I'm certainly not, I don't think I am, um, but I should be probably. Um, and like, how do you restore that? Well, you know, there might be some, um, there might be some things you can learn from that sort of period, but ultimately it re ended really bad for the Fry Corps. Um, initially they did really well. And that's one of the things that uh, scared the, the Allied powers was that the Fry Corps were super effective, and in a matter of like four months, they had taken over Riga or some or something along that. They so the original uh, the original agreement between who that was mediated with uh, August Vining, which was the plenipotentiary of the Baltic region for Germany, and the Latvian government happened on December 29th, nineteen eighteen. And by May 22nd, 1919, the Fry Corps had repelled Bolshevism from, uh, from Latvia and they had taken over Riga. You know, that's a matter of months <laughs> that they did that. And that started to scare the Allied powers. Originally, the Allied powers gave their tacit consent because they were the only force that was willing and capable of fighting off Bolshevism because even, you know, even the Allies didn't want Bolshevism to take over that part of the world. Um, but once they saw their, their success, they started to get a little bit worried and eventually um, all support for them was pretty much taken away and they sort of fizzled away and most of the soldiers went back to Germany. But there, in that failure, you might actually find some sort of model for success if 
if there were any, if there was ever any legitimate elite that wanted to recouple people with their land. You know, it, it's interesting that you talk about that because you know, the homogenous nature of of the world in which we live is it, it's really a, a, a tragedy in in my mind. Uh, you know, recently, we had on, on uh, Ben Wilson, who's the host of the How to Take Over the World podcast, and on his uh, Alexander the Great series, he talked about how every new city that Alexander came to there were new languages, new foods, new gods, new customs, new, you know, their new cultures. And now, like you said, I mean, everyone's listening to the same music, everyone's playing the same games, everyone's eating the same McDonald's. And yeah, and, and it's, it's really unfortunate, you know, and then on the flip side, I, it's pretty cool that so much research has been done that is available in English. And, and to your credit, I mean, you're not waiting for this literature to suddenly be widely available you know i i bet people who we do a quick google search could not learn everything that you've learned uh, and a lot of people will stop at those dead ends but you know you've made an effort and i think that a lack of effort is really what what's wrong with a, a lot of our society is is people don't have to try hard to to do anything. Yeah. So um, one of the things that I had always been interested in is sort of uh, philosophy of technology, philosophy of technique. And I remember a lecture given by a professor of mine on, on the, uh, which was sort of based around the, the language learning app duo with, you know, the green owl. Um, and the entire purpose of that app is pretty much to take away the difficulty that comes with learning a language and, and make it more easy. And that's, you know, it makes language learning into a game sort of, right? And that's sort of been done with like everything. Like uh, working out is no longer just working out, getting big. It's like, I have to meet these benchmarks on my, on my uh, smartwatch and things like that. Or even like, or like brushing your teeth, right? They came out with those stupid, um, like toothbrushes that play music, right? Um, so everything has sort of been sort of gamified and commodified to the point where like they've they've trying to take out the difficulty in doing things. But like if you take away the difficulty in doing things, like things sort of become unrewarding, right? You, um, and there's also no respect in sort of actually putting the difficulty in to do something. And also most of the time, like things that are gamified never work. Like no one like reaches a hard, like a very good understanding of Spanish or any other language with Duolingo. Like to like maybe you can start off with it, but after a year or two, you're sort of putting that aside and getting more into like classic learning methods. Um, so yeah, like the struggle that I've always had in my mind, which I've only recently sort of found some sort of conclusion is um, how do you reconcile maybe some of the good things that can come around with like, uh, a conversion of, of a one world unipolar system. Like, it's pretty cool that I get to read these texts and stuff, but at the same time, um, there's actually like, there are so many texts now that even, even if I did a translation of them, like, uh, first of all, would other people read it? 
And even now, like, uh, you know, computers are being programmed to do these old text translations. So at that point, what's the point of ever learning a new language? Well, the point of learning language was always that it's, it's good to communicate with other people, but also it was a self-disciplinary and self-enlightenment method. Just by learning a new language, you enter into a completely different social paradigm within your mind. Um, and you understand, with a new language, you, you can understand the world in a completely different manner. Um, and you know the, that sort of paradigm shifts between, like the ability to maintain sep sep several different paradigms within your mind you know, how long will that be around? That's really good. That's good insight. You know, and I, I think it's important to remember that, you know, you never know who you're going to reach with something like you, you have these firsthand accounts and you know, when these people that wrote them, they had no idea who, who it would reach. Um, I did a, a podcast of like four years ago uh, with a buddy on the Bog of Cats, which is uh, this Irish uh, play, and it was super random. You know, my uh, our usual listeners like were just like, "Why, why are you doing this?" And then I got a, a message on social media from some student in Brazil who was learning about this Irish play and was thanking me for, for, you know, having done that. So it was kind of random, but I, I think that there is universal value in what you're doing now. And, and even more importantly than that, there's individual value here. There's another section I, I want to read. I say all this to suggest that when answering a question as foundational to human nature as why do people fight, it's necessary for theories to be extremely human philosophical, and slightly esoteric. It's necessary to understand the non-material aspects of ideology and an internal human spirit, most importantly, the metaphysics and metapolitics of human interaction. This issue must be better studied to understand why a man faces every bullet and tolerates every cold night in the open is to understand man itself. Yeah, um, so... One of the things that made me super interested in this uh, in this period and this um, movement was that um, the reasons for these men individually to go out and participate in this effort. Um, so some of the incentives were so after the 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 agreement between the German and Latvian government had been signed. The recruitment centers just became flooded immediately. And one of the reasons was that the Latvian government had promised uh, citizenship to these soldiers and after four weeks of service and land was offered to them uh, for relatively cheap pre-inflation prices. Um, but another, and that, that was important. And those were sort of the Latvian citizenship was only the one that was legally promised by the Latvian government. The, the recruitment center sort of made lofty promises that it really couldn't ever been kept. Um, but another reason was that a lot of these uh, soldiers had uh, started fighting in the war, uh, in the First World War, like pretty much when they turned 16, 17, 18. And that had, and so like their entire adult life 
war has been pretty much the only thing they had known. The idea of returning back to sort of this mundane life within a new inept socialist uh, republic was just totally unthinkable to them. And, you know, when, and they had felt extremely betrayed by the German government. So at this point, like their, op op their options were to sort of go back into what they thought was a um, shackled inept republic, or they could go out east, get citizenship in a new country, and, you know, fight for a little bit longer. At the very least, they wanted to sort of reconciliate within their mind um, the, the humiliating defeat that they had faced. And maybe there was an opportunity to rectify that in some way. But another reason was that, and a lot of the, a lot of people were criminals who thought of the East, uh, the Baltics as a new opportunity for them to evade what they thought was, uh, was gonna be an unjust regime treating them unfairly. And so the, 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 and a lot of people just sort of wanted to go out for their own personal glory. So, you know, you had several factors as to why someone would want to join this sort of regiment, which had very little support from the government ever. It had somewhat, it was somewhat supported. But the Baltics were an extremely uh, desolate, cold place, especially in the winters. Um, when the, the conflict first started. Um, so, and, you know, every night was a legit threat to their survival because of how cold and, and snowy and, and also, you know, you had Latvian riflemen facing down on them who were like extremely, uh, uh, extremely talented riflemen. Um, so you have all these things going against them, but yet like up to 40,000 men were ready to go and, and fight in that theater and if you want to understand, like one of the reasons I wrote that uh, in my preface that a lot of academics apply the rationality of states to human is that within international relations, when you're examining the, uh, the, the state level of conflict, it makes a lot of sense to treat states rationally. States are generally very large bureaucratic organizations and, and most of their actions uh, are, you know, rational only sort of means that it follows an internal logic. You can, you can sort of disagree if that logic is um, set up right or if the preferences are set up right, but it does follow in sort of internal logic. And in that case, it makes sense to treat states rationally. It doesn't make sense though, when you're resolving conflict between humans, especially in an area where governmental order had sort of been broken down, um, it doesn't make sense to apply that same sort of rationality onto humans. So if you want to understand why these men were willing to go and fight and, you know, a lot of them died, um, you have to understand why, uh, you have to understand things that aren't super rational, like uh, the idea of personal glory, or, you know, the idea that they might be able to reconcile their defeat this way, or even just four more years of the fighting that they had gotten used to. I mean, the idea of going back to normal life was sort of, uh, you know, caused a lot of these men to break down psychologically. And you still see that with veterans, right? Who get, who come back from, from uh, their deployment and they just really can't 
um, acclimate to normal life anymore. Um, and if you're unable to understand the internal logic of these guys, well, then you're totally unable to understand why this conflict happened in the first place. And that's one of the reasons that I think like a lot of research has it. These academics are totally unable to understand why this conflict ever took place. And so you have to break down that rationalist mindset. And when you do, you can start, you can start understanding these men, you can start understanding this conflict, and you can start getting a clearer answer as to why men fight. And, and you know, it's not biological, really. It's not, um, it's not, it's definitely not gender related. One of the articles that sort of made me more interested in conflict resolution was an article about the Serbian civil war from a female academic. And she was essentially saying that hypermasculinity caused these men to go and fight. And maybe that's true to some extent, fighting is a masculine trait, absolutely. But um, she portrayed it as like some sort of disservice to their wives and children and stuff when they went out and fought as if they weren't uh, consulting their wives and kids about these things. Um, but, and you know, that's not an accurate way of understanding these men. I, like the foundation of why they went and fought uh, for a lot of people in that conflict within Serbia was, um, was their wife and kids. But yeah, so a lot of the, the, the point of my article is breaking down that really bad um, presumption flaw that a lot of academics have. Well, and you talked about the inability for them to embrace normal life again, and, and you even referenced it with the with veterans. But I, I think you can even look at it for where we are today, you know, two years ago versus there's a bunch of people that have the lack the ability to acclimate back to normal life at this point. And so can you can you give some other references where you see uh, some of these things repeating themselves today? Uh, that, as you've learned some of those things from the past? Yeah, so um, a lot of the the men after the world had ended who had briefly gone back to the, the New Republic um, were just sort of bored out of their minds now. And the mundaneness of life was really getting to them. And in a more broader sort of society level uh, context, the mundaneness of life is really getting to a lot of people now. And maybe they don't lash out in the same way where they go pick up arms and joy, join a militia somewhere. But like it's causing people to like kill themselves and get on like opioids and stuff. Because like the alternative to like opioids is like watching Netflix all day, which a lot of people do. So life's like with like opioids, like <laughs> it's probably more fun than watching Netflix all day. Uh, so you have your preference list there. For these guys, it was, you know, the, the preference list just changed, but like the uh, the foundational logic of it was the same. I am bored now. So here's a list of things that I would rather do. So, and so I'm just gonna go down the list of things that I'd rather do. And at the end of it is like, oh, I'm gonna go to the Baltics and like murk people or get murked. Either way, like it's more fun than doing what I am doing right now. Um, especially for a regime that sort of like hates me now. Um, and, you know, people do that now, like, okay, my life sucks. Like, um, 
I don't have a really good paying job. I'm not particularly smart, so it's not like I can go do, and like, but like the entire point of an elite is to facilitate a country that like can provide at least a decent life for people who are sort of average and or not average and below average intelligence. Like you, you're supposed to provide a sort of dignity for them. And in that way you become a legitimate elite. But if you're living in a country where your elite isn't sort of doing that and they facilitate uh, you know, pharmaceutical companies to fill you with drugs and stuff. Well, so now you ha you have a new list of, of preferences of things that you would rather do than like working your fast food nine to five, coming home to your ridiculously priced apartment, um, you know, and this entire life that's been constructed for you by your elites who don't really care about your well-being. And so, you, you know, you do, you either do drugs or if you're or, or watch Netflix, or if you're brave, you just sort of just end up killing yourself uh, because that's like, that's something you would rather do than, than this now. Um, so the set, you know, the satisfaction of, of, of preferences in that case is, is sort of accurate um, because, you know, the, uh, the alternative to um, going out fighting and maybe dying is staying home in, in sort of a, less than less conditions than what one would consider um, would provide adequate dignity. Um, so, you know, why, why stay home? I mean, it's, you, you have more chance of having fun um, in the Baltics and a lot of the soldiers in their memoirs, they would write like, I went to the Baltics and like the trees were so beautiful and there was no one around us and it was just peaceful. Um, but, and like every now and then you would hear the sound of shots and like for the first time I enjoyed myself again many years or whatever. Um, I mean, and the mundaneness of life is sort of doing the same thing now where you sort of go to your nine to five wage cage, come home and like, I don't know, you can either watch Netflix or shoot heroin. They're sort of the same thing, really. <laughs> Man, that's, that's so true. You know, and, and Tom and I have, have talked about this offline at, at length. So how do you think this can, and, you know, obviously with the Fry Corps, I mean, it was purposeful. I mean, here, here are people doing something with meaning. How does this contrast with like the Redditors who, you know, want to go fight against Vladimir Putin and stand with Ukraine? You know, it, cause it, that, that seems like a cheap counterfeit to, to what these volunteers did. Yeah. So, um, and I heard a, a back podcast about this today. So my thoughts on this are a little bit influenced by him right now. Um, so like the Fry Corps had legitimate uh, reasons, I think, to want to go off. And some of the, the leaders of the Fry Corps definitely saw themselves as the legitimate authorities of the German nation. They were the ones who were still fulfilling uh, the German cause, whatever. Uh, a lot of the men just wanted to go off and fight. Okay, that's fine. But these Redditors aren't saying that. They're not saying, oh, I just want to go off and like kill people. I would have a little bit more respect for you if you just sort of said that. But what they're saying is like, oh, I'm going to go defend like democracy and gay rights and whatever. And, you know, as you know, I was listening to the podcast and he's, and he's sort of right, like those are fake constructed identities. And also like, I don't think a lot of Redditors are actually going there. The, the people who I see going there are actually like good men who are sort of being manipulated 
by illegitimate leaders into thinking into going there. So like, um, and that makes the same point, and I think it's it's right that uh, you can't really sell people the idea of like go there and die for gay rights. No one, no like serious person wants to go there and die for gay rights. But if you start um, if you start conceptualizing within these people's mind that go over there and like fight for, and this is what a lot of the propaganda on the other side of the Ukrainian has been, go there and fight for white girl in wheat field carrying bread and milk. Okay, well then you'll get like a couple of guys to go and fight for that. It's totally a lie, obviously. That's not what you're, what you're gonna go there and die for. And even like the guys who have gone have been, total, have been totally mistreated by the Ukrainian government. But um, so that's how you get people to fight. Uh, at least that's how you trick people into, into fighting these sort of legitimate wars. Um, and the Fry Corps sort of had the same thing. Like if you believed in it, you were going to fight for uh, the legitimate nation of Germany. And if you didn't believe in it, you were just sort of, you were either going there for your Latvian citizenship at the end the land you were promised for settlement or just to go get four more years of fighting because that's all you know. Um, and that's, that's, you know, that's what's happening right now, sort of a cheap imitation of that. That's really insightful. Thank you. And, and I, I agree, you know, well, and I think it's unfortunate because I think a lot of the same people who are, you know, pushing this narrative of stand with Ukraine and oh, Vladimir Putin is the mustache twirling, you know, super villain uh, from a Marvel movie. It, those same people are the ones saying that the people who walked around with flags on January 6th are terrorists, you know, and, and, and they're telling these people to stand up for freedom after two years of, you know, lockdowns and quarantines and masks and vaccine mandates, it, I, it, which I think is just completely insane that they would uh, have the gall to, to try and push that narrative on, on after having bowed down to tyranny. Now they want people on the other side of the world to stand up to this tyranny. Yeah, I mean, within uh, sort of the occupational illegitimate elite right now, a lot of their strategy is sort of just saying what's convenient at the time, right? Like, that's that's not new insight, but, um, you know, but like in, in the Baltics where you had elites who sort of genuinely cared about, uh, at the you know, if not necessarily about um, who their subjects were, at the very least that like, they had subjects um, and they had land under which like the well-being of the land and, and the territory under them was was important to them, not sort of just their own sort of self-aggrandizement. Um, and unfortunately, you know, we, we really don't have that anymore in most countries. Um, Right, like, you know, this has been said before, it's sort of obvious that most civilization right now is just sort of uh, constructed on premises of construction, of, of con you know, constructing consumer products and and building a more uh, technical civilization that we should, you know, eventually just sort of only uh, 
benefits a really small population of people. Well, obviously, I, I want people to to get in and, and read the articles, uh, but I did want to read just a, a part of the the second installment of the series. After German defeat in 1918, territorial claims to the Baltics became little more than an idealistic dream. The German state, being an inept and incompetent socialist republic, could barely maintain control of its main western territory, let alone defend an eastern colony. Allied powers imposed strict restrictions on German military operations and capabilities. Groups of German men had begun to organize themselves into paramilitary groups. These factions of volunteer forces with no discernible loyalties were known as Freikorps regiments. The vast majority of these men were veterans of the German military coming to terms with the shame of defeat and the degradation of their country. So what, what does this look like? And, and Tom kind of asked this earlier, but, but for us, I mean, obviously this is a fascinating and, and beautiful part of, of history and, and very important, but you know, short of establishing uh, our own Fry Corps, uh, what would you say to people who who do feel uh, shame, uh, the shame of defeat and degradation of their country today? Yeah, I definitely wouldn't recommend anyone go out and join like paramilitary groups or militias or anything like that. Don't do that. You know, you're gonna just get yourself in more trouble than it's worth. But be a volunteer firefighter. Yeah, be a volunteer firefighter or something like that. Um, but so, yeah, we're sort of uh, faced with a really impossible situation right now. In the same ways, I guess, sort of the Freikorps men were aware, you, you know, your state definitely isn't on your side. And a large fraction of the nation really isn't on your side either. Um, but this, this can be changed actually, at least, at least on the nation side, the state side is a little bit more complicated because most states are sort of been set up systematically and structurally, uh, to insulate itself from any sort of actual democratic input. But on the nation level, it, it you know, you don't need the consensus of, everyone to make reasonable change, even within, if you want to operate within the democratic paradigm, you can sort of get away with um, a passionate minority. And that's sort of what's been done actually, right? Um, but if, hmm. I think that the best thing uh, for our guys especially to do at this point is actually work on understanding the way that the attitudes of men are formed. So one of the guys that I'm really into and I've written a lot about is Jacques Ellul, who's a French sociologist. He was a really brilliant guy. And he wrote this book called Propaganda. And Essentially, he sort of uh, dissects on how attitudes of men are formed. And it's a really good book. And 
what I think has, our guys haven't been able to do is to fully understand the way that the attitudes of men are formed. And they're, you know, they're formed on actually like two or three fundamental premises. One of them is uh, that all men sort of internally have this idea of happiness that if they do, they want to get sort of more closer to a happy life for themselves. And secondly, the, you know, there's this sort of idea of paradise within a lot of people that, you know, the more technological innovations there are in things, then eventually we'll get to this sort of technical paradise where life becomes super easy and things like, like when you ever talk to everyone about like uh, how good things have become or not become, like the, the immediate thing that like bug men go to to display like how good life has become now is like, oh, we're living until like 140 and, you know, life is super comfy and I have like, I have heated toilet seat and whatever, right? Uh, yeah, like, yeah, that's, that's what it means to have like a good life, I guess. But, you know, it wasn't always like that. The conceivable idea of a good life wasn't always that. It, you know, originally in the Middle Ages, it was to like reflect yourself onto the world. Um, so if you want to get people on your side, um, you have to develop uh, propaganda methods which, which speak to those sort of foundational um, dreams and desires within men that sort of inform their attitudes. So that's one of the things that I think a lot of our guys should do uh, right now, because you know, we, we're not totally facing defeat in the same way that they are. But if to reconcile with, their, with your defeat is like you can also just sort of do what the Freikorps guys did is find endeavors that might not necessarily be uh, civilization saving. Like a lot of the guys didn't necessarily care in the Freikorps that if they were gonna save civilization or not, they just wanted to go fight. Like just find something that you like to do and I guess sort of uh, just enjoy that for a while. And at the very least, uh, you'll get some personal fulfillment from it. Um, and at the very best, you win. I love that. That at the very best, you'll you'll win. I like that. You know, one of the things that I think is really significant, and and you you touched on it just now, but I want to read another excerpt. This promise of land for settlement invokes in man the dream of reflecting oneself onto the world. It is that it is the desire to conquer space, to bring physical space under your control is one dimension of the quest for space. But I also mean the Baptist conception of self-mastery. In fact, they are directly correlated. You cannot master yourself without controlling the land around you. Columbus's greatness is found in his effort to subdue and conquer the Americas, thus conquering space in the Americas and mastering his innate ability as conqueror. The Fry Corps greatness is found in their effort to conquer and protect the Baltics from Bolshevism through their personal self-mastery. And hey, have you ever read uh, Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings? No, I haven't actually. Yeah, I, I definitely, I know you're reading a billion things, but if you ever get a chance, even the audio version is good. But this is a quote that Elder Neil A. Maxwell actually used, and, and I like to quote it a lot, uh, but it's from the character Aragorn. And he says, it is not our part to master all the tides of the world, but to do what is in us for the sucker of those years wherein we are set, uprooting the evil in the fields that we know 
so that those who live after may have clean earth to till. What weather they shall have is not ours to rule. And you know that that reminds me a lot of uh, Elder Dorf's "Lift Where You Stand" and, and and just doing something like you said, you know, whatever cause that is, you know, uh, as an alternative to shooting heroin uh, or you know just binging Netflix. Um, the the next uh, part of your article is also great. In a fake and gay world, everything has a minimum of 40 levels of irony and obfuscation. Most of what we now perceive in the world has been passed through smoke and mirrors. So if you want to understand man's natural desires, you have to strip him of his manners. This is why I've always enjoyed a Rousseauian interpretation of natural man. One particularly important observation Rousseau makes, made concerns the ability of natural man. The body being the only instrument that savage man is acquainted with, he employs it to different uses, of which ours, for want of practice, are incapable. And we may thank our industry for the loss of that strength and agility, which necessity obliges him to acquire. Had he a hatchet, would his hand so easily snap off from an oak so stout a branch? Had he a sling, would it dart a stone to so great a distance? Had he a ladder, would he run so nimbly up a tree? Had he a horse, would he with such swiftness shoot along the plain? In this instance, natural man stripped of his creations has mastered his inborn abilities to manipulate space. Natural man sought mastery of space in a way that was particular to him. With this mastery came the development of all of his faculties. Through mastering his space, he became strong. When he no longer needs to conquer his space, he loses his abilities. The state and particularly urbanization can be thought of as, as analogous to hatchets, slings, and ladders. They may make life, quote unquote, easier, but they drain man of his natural faculties. The urban state constricts which actions are permissible and which aren't. This may seem fine, but the body seeks homeostasis. Too many chains causes man to grow restless. This sentiment was common among Fry Corps volunteers. There were many who were attracted by the lack of order and rules in the Baltics. Some were criminals who felt they could escape punishment by fighting in the Baltics. So, I, I mean, just there's so much good stuff to unpack there, but it's really true. It's like we we're talking about. I mean, people like they, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard like, oh, my steps don't count if my, uh, you know, whatever, I, Apple, iPhone watch. Uh, records you know it's like they, they just it it's not real if they don't tweet about it or if they don't get a picture of it on their phone you know so but yeah i mean what, what do you guys think about that it's, it's so much to unpack there yeah i mean i think with anything the resistance is required in order for growth i mean we can't get stronger without it and i i find it interesting i mean the the taking away the hatchet the you know, the latter, the taking away of those ease, uh, I think you're right. I mean, I think without, uh, with everything becoming easier, I think society in a whole uh, has become weaker physically in a lot of ways. I mean, we walk around and we see, we see the, the flaccid weak man that, that couldn't dig a ditch if they had to. We see the, the weak minded that, that are, refusing to read that are just that as it's been said before are, are no better than those that can't read so i mean i, I guess i would ask because i really don't know the answer how do you fix it <laughs> yeah um 
So I've asked this question before to people smarter than me, and uh, there doesn't really seem to be a consensus on this, because actually what you're asking is sort of, uh, how do you strip modern society of its modernness? Um, and, you know, some people have, uh, I think Heidegger uh, sort of said that, uh, like, technology is going to make things so boring and so bad that it's all just sort of going to collapse on itself. Um, and, but some people, like Elul, who never actually uh, prophesied, but he, uh, at least not explicitly, but it seems from his writings that he thinks it's just going to keep getting worse and worse until we're all just sort of like uh, uh, drooling, mind-numbed uh, people with like VR headsets on all the time and like the auto blow on our wieners and stuff. Um, but, you know, the solution to it, I think to me has always been uh, a, a ruling class of uh, dignified, intelligent uh, elites who can, and if you have a legitimate uh, elite in your country, uh, people sort of, people respect and venerate them and honor them. You know, if, if your country has legitimate elites, people celebrate their elites. People like the idea of having uh, a good ruling class. If you get a good uh, ruling class that's educated in, in, in uh, sort of the in classical philosophy and 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 at the very least just like how to build a healthy society, well then you'll you'll have a lot more people who are sort are sort of more interested in living a more fulfilling life and 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 doing the doing things that are that are not only good for society but that are good for internal growth but and also what you really need is an elite that can that can set parameters on on the way that society functions so one of the interest interesting things is that um with you know ancient greece had a lot of mechanisms in their society for getting rid of things that they thought would be a threat to the way of their life so famously, they had ostracization where they would pretty much just kick anyone who they thought was a threat to the, to the city, right? Um, and you know that 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 generally worked out well for them. Uh, another aspect they had was that a lot of uh, Greek, uh, you know, philosophers and inventors, when they would create something or come up with something. And they it either confirmed or 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 didn't or didn't confirm their their hypothesis. Um, they would immediately destroy either the invention or the mechanism that they used to to solve their problem. And the reason was that you might not be able to see the immediate effects of the thing that you've just created, but you or the long term effects of the things you just created. But you know that there are long term effects, and if the long-term effects can get away from you, well, that threatens the health and well-being of your society. So the answer is to just get rid of it. But in you know now it's sort of un totally unconceivable to invent something that works and not use it, right? Uh, if there's a new material like a new plastic or or a, a new metal or a new tool or something, you have to use it. It does not make sense to get rid of it. And 
that's a lack of self-control within man and also within society. A reasonable elite would implement self-control mechanisms not only within you know, sort of formal governmental laws, uh, but also within the biopolitics of man, you know, the things that cause people to do what they do. If you, if you can do that, uh, which you can, and I think a reason uh, a smart uh, benevolent aristocracy could do, then you have the chance of actually creating a, a long-lasting uh, healthy society. But is it fair to assume then that as life gets easier and easier and technology becomes greater and greater, that we're going to have more and more people dive into weakness and despair, and we're going to have a select few become even greater elites? No, I don't think it is. Um, because uh, so the the elites that uh, you know, the legitimate elites that sort of run this system right now have created a lot of technological, uh, biopolitical, and, um, and and governmental insulation for the way that they govern. It's in, so it's very hard to affect these organizations in sort of any meaningful way. Uh, you know, and if, if everyone gets weak, uh, the people who won't get weak, uh, you know, they might be physically weak, but institutionally will be strong, the elites. They might themselves like, like be fat people, nipples protruding and whatever, but they'll, they'll still have the power of, of their institutions that they've set up and the power of the technology infrastructure that they control. Uh, you know, so it, it is like, you know, it is likely to me that it just sort of just keeps getting worse and worse um, until, you know, everything's just sort of a shit show. Uh, but, you know, it could get better, but the, the alternative is sort of maybe even more likely, um, at least in the long-term future. Because, you know, even if you do have a, a class of sort of hyper intellectual uh, peasants who may be uh, mentally superior to the ruling class, it's like, okay, mental superiority is sort of a good, that's a good thing. It's good to have. But if, if you're unable to exert that mental superiority in any sort of meaningful way, um, then it's, it's sort of useless. Like, you know, the occupational class is dumb but they're smart enough to know when like someone's trying to subvert them generally. So, yeah. and I guess I'm even saying more along the ones that are willing to embrace the conflict, whether that be the conflict within mind, the conflict within, you know, body, all those things. I mean, I feel like it's possible that they could become the elites as the others become well, less. Obsolete. Yeah. Yeah, but if you know, if you want to be uh, at least a, the elite of a nation, then that implies some sort of political power that you yes. wield. Um, getting that political power is sort of the problem that we okay. have right now. Um, the elites are really well insulated in their political power. Yeah, they and, are. That's that's it, definitely true. It's, you know, it's reasonable, but I think what's more likely to happen, actually, is that uh, is fracturing of the elite itself. 
it's it's more conceivable to me that uh, in the future, you know, a, a someone who was born into the elite class and and makes his way to uh, to political power in in the same way that elites control political power, not necessarily like a senate seat or whatever. Some things are useless. Um, that he recognizes that uh, actually he would much rather be sort of a, a benevolent aristocrat. Uh, and create a supremely healthy civilization, then, then you know, create the sort of sad, uh, um, the sad civilization that we have right now. It's more likely change comes from within the ruling class than it does from outside the ruling class. I don't know if if what I've observed is is due to uh, a lack of imagination or uh, on the flip side uh, a, a lack of uh, grasping reality but we're, we're seeing things in this country that we've never seen before i mean we've never seen uh, sweeping mask mandates or lockdowns and quarantines or vaccine requirements and now you know, we're seeing uh, prices of fuel going up exponentially almost and we're hearing the president of the united states saying there's going to be food shortages and and i don't know if it's just a, a kind of uh stupor that that people aren't but it's almost like people can't imagine these things happening until they happen and then and then it's too late so what would you say is the best way to kind of get out of that that mindset that oh nothing bad can really happen oh yeah you know it'll be fine we'll just you know order uber eats or whatever how, how do we break free of that or do we can we even um yeah i mean i don't really have any good answers as to how you get like the masses to break free of that the thing about masses is actually they're extremely malleable and they'll often sort of um, they'll sort of uh, take whatever the most pot modern or the most popular modern paradigm is, um, and they'll sort of adopt it as their own. I've always believed this, and so what you really need is actually, um, you know, the the fight for a healthy civilization happens at the very top. Uh, it's informed from the bottom, undoubtedly. Um, and but you know, the fight for it is at the very top. So how, the question, I guess, is then, how do you get the influence uh, from the bottom? Sort of, if you have sort of these uh, these really smart guys going around um, and and coming up with ideas on how to run a healthy society, is how do you make that effect bottom up so that these ideas get to the top? And, um, and like I just said, I don't really uh, know if you can. I think, uh, uh, you know, you might get lucky and, and someone will get into the mind of an elite or something and they will sort of start working bottom down. But the amount of mobility uh, bottom up or, or yeah, bottom up, uh, you know, I don't really know if there's a whole lot of mobility in it. 
And, you know, this isn't to say that, you know, your efforts are fruitless. Your efforts are definitely doing something. At the very least, they're sort of uh, impeding the, uh, the eventual goal. Uh, but also right now, one article that I'm working on is on multipolarity among states, where for the longest time, for at least 100 years now or so, um, the world has sort of ran on a unilateral order with brief period during the, during the Cold War. But the United States has sort of been the unilateral world uh, hegemon, undoubtedly. Um, but what's, what seems incredibly likely in the, near, in the very near future, actually just happened quicker than I thought, was that, is that the world is going to become extremely multipolar, meaning you'll have sort of equal superpowers dispersed around the globe. And it, there won't be a clear, uh, a clear hegemon anymore. That provides the opportunity for change within occupational classes from outside of the pair, outside of the, the system of each individual state. And that way, I think is actually uh, more likely to change things for the better than any sort of domestic uh, intervention that could possibly happen. Because once countries are forced to seriously start competing with other countries, that's when countries start acting seriously again, right? It's, it's um, like when you have to start uh, fighting people for your survival, that's when you realize how powerful you actually are or just how, or, you know, that's when you realize that you, sort, you can't get through life being sort of an inept idiot uh, and going around, you know, uh, doing ridiculous things like we're doing right now. The issue is that like right now, right, we're run by toddlers, but even like a 200 foot toddler can do like a lot of damage, right? <laughs> um, but once you get toddlers the same age and all the toddlers have to start fighting each other and they're all the same height sort of, well, then the toddlers start becoming adults and they realize, okay, we have to start acting like adults. And that's when countries will start acting seriously. And that's when you have the opportunity for legitimate, healthy ruling class. And that's sort of, you know, what, what made the United States uh, the superpower that it sort of did in the first place. It had to compete amongst other states um, to, to be the most powerful state. Uh, and that actually, I think that's probably the most, the greatest white pill I'll, I'll ever give is that you're entering a period of multipolarity. States are gonna have to compete with each other that's the opportunity for your country, if it's sort of a, a cucked Western country right now, to become what it was original, originally meant to be. That's the opportunity for the United States to fulfill its destiny, which the founders of the country had in mind. That's, that's powerful, man. Yeah, thank you. So besides writing fantastic articles what are you doing to conquer space and and reflect yourself on the world yeah um i'm sort of uh constricted to writing and going on really good podcasts right now but <laughs> thanks man but, that's um, a real compliment coming from you oh this is my favorite podcast i listen to it all the time at the gym but um yeah, I guess I, I'm not doing as much as I should be. There are other guys doing a lot more than me, and I'm, and and that's good. Um, you should always do what I what I say, not what I do. Uh, 
but uh, sometimes it's enough to think, I think. Um, and I think that's, that's sort of my role for the time being. Uh, I'll, I'll spread out into other things eventually, but right now um, I'm, I'm, I'm wasting my time on thinking. Well, I don't think it's it's wasted at all, brother. There's one more excerpt I want to read, and, and I think this is, at least for me, my, my favorite part. The feeling of basking under a foreign sun, breathing a foreign air is vitalizing. To some extent, you experience this when you leave the smog-filled air of the city for the sweetness of the country. Imagine that high multiplied tenfold. Political affairs mattered little to these men, yet they could tell their empire no longer existed in any meaningful way. The Baltics were an opportunity for them to create a place for them upon which they could reflect themselves. One soldier recalls, I thrust my finger into the rich earth, which seemed to pull me in. We had conquered this ground. Now it challenged us. Suddenly it had become a committing symbol. The opportunity to create something from nothing rarely presents itself, even at that time. The men who made their way to the Baltics would witness the landscape calling them to adventure. The land seemed mysterious and certainly dangerous. The cold winter nights posed a constant threat to life. The landscape was subjected to the terrors of the season, brief days of hunger, unfamiliar rules of warfare. Then the landscape was most fantastic, as black nights in which wind and ice create ghostly noises slowly drag away the hours but this was the point wasn't it taming the untamable mastering the landscape mastering this land would soon become an obsession for many and i i love that and you say that it was uh and this is a quote from the notorious ernst von solomon uh remarked that the baltics was a sort of lovely backdrop for a violent adventure and I, I think that's true. You know, obviously we're, we're talking about some, some, you know, pretty big, big picture ideas, but even on an individual level, I mean, besides conquering new land, I mean, that new land might be getting married, you know, uh, proposing to that, that uh, person you've been dating, uh, having a child, uh, teaching your child. So my daughter today uh, just learned how to ride her bike. Uh, you know, without training wheels. And last night she couldn't, and today she could, it was just, you know, amazing to see that transformation. Um, it might be, you know, putting an application for that job. It might be quitting your job. You know, it could be buying a house or selling. It, there's so many things that people can do. It might just be thinking, like you said, it could be reading or writing. I think there are so many things we can do to reflect ourselves upon the world. But I even think sometimes it's just simply conquering our own, our, our own restrictions, our own fears. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's self-mastery, right? Sort of the things we were talking about earlier. Um, but yeah, and the Baltics were, for a lot of these guys, was just the opportunity to sort of go on an adventure. And it's, it's fine to go on adventures sometimes. Sometimes the adventure is just sort of the only reason to do it you don't sort of really need to end to it so uh yeah sometimes it's it's definitely enough to think sometimes i think actually um and it's it's enough to to go on these sort of adventures it definitely you know it didn't take any any less bravery 
for these guys if they just wanted to go on adventure. You're still running into a really dangerous situation. Um, and even now, like a lot of the things that uh, are sort of mundane adventures now, like they're just as important as, you know, more broader political or sociological goals that you might have. Absolutely. So Nemo, where, where can people find you? How can they support you? Because uh, I, I know a lot of people are, are going to get a lot of value out of, of what you're putting out. Yeah, um, you can find me on Twitter at Anchor Still. And uh, from there, you can get to my Substack, which will be in my, in my bio on my Twitter. Awesome. And we'll link that in the, in the description. And, and certainly this series is, is not the only thing. You, you've written tons of other great articles as well. Um, and you put out such good content on Twitter as well. Oh, I appreciate it. Well, Tom, do you have any, any other questions before we wrap up? Oh, man, it's been awesome. I enjoyed the insight, especially on something that I vet, that knew very little about. What, what else uh, would you like to tell our listeners before we, we sign off? Uh, go follow the NIM stack. I'm on my second Frycore article right now. Third one's coming out pretty soon. Article about multipolarity coming out. Lots of interesting stuff on other irregular forces also coming in the future. That's awesome. And you're a prolific, right? I mean, you, you cover so many topics. Uh, do you have any idea you know, how long you want this series to be on the Frycore? This series is going to be longer than I initially anticipated. It's probably going to get to the five or six articles. Awesome. Well, we're looking forward to that. And thank you again so much for your time and for coming on and, and uh, keep thinking and, and keep doing and God bless you, man. It was my pleasure. God bless. Thank Thanks, you. And until next time, thank you for tuning in. This has been Tom and Brett and Nima out.